So this morning we're going to dive right into the text. For visitors, we've been in the book of Philippians, and we're in Philippians chapter 2, just looking at verses 12 and 13 today. But I do want to back up just a little bit to verse 27 of chapter 1, and this will serve as my introduction for this morning, and I'll show you why these things matter as we get there. So Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 27, and this marks where Paul begins to give his admonishment or his exhortation. I guess it's more of an exhortation, and admonishment is more of correcting a path as opposed to encouraging uh, something else. So he's encouraging, he's exhorting them towards something here. He's already commended them for their behavior. He's commended them for the, for the, for the good work that they've done, for the faithful work that they've done. And so he begins with his exhortations in verse 27. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind, the mind of Christ, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not equality a thing with God, uh, not a, count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, that's the first therefore, God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Second, therefore, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is God who works in you to work for his good pleasure. So I've divided these two verses into four sections that I want to address this morning. Okay, so we're going to move through this as fluidly as we possibly can. But I want you to hang with me here because I'm going to show you what's happening in these four sections so therefore, as, as mentioned, anytime there's a therefore, you see why it's there. You see what it's in reference to. He begins by saying, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more. So as I'm looking at this, and maybe as you're looking at this, I think the question should come up, why does he put a premium on the way they're conducting themselves now as opposed to the way they conducted themselves when Paul was present does it not beg the question as, as, to, as to this? Regardless of where we are or who we're with, should it not always be our responsibility to 
give our best to the Lord to live a life that's in a manner worthy of the gospel. So if that's the case, which I would think that it is, why, why is it so important that the Philippians exemplify the gospel conduct now much more than how they did when they were with Paul? Why would he even go there? Why would he even say that? Because he acknowledges their obedience. It's not that they were not obedient and now he's saying, hey, it's time to, it's time to pony up. It's time to become obedient. It's time to, to do something. They were obedient. He's commending them for these things. As a matter of fact, therefore is referencing all the things that I just read to you. It's referencing the life lived in a manner worthy of the gospel. It's referencing standing firm in your faith, being of one mind, striving side by side with one another, being courageous, being unified, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, practicing humility, counting others and their interests as more significant than yourself. That's what he's referencing. He's saying, therefore, you've, you've done these things, these things that I've listed, these things that I've commended you, you've obeyed them well. You are an, an exemplary uh, uh, well, you're a, a great example of what it is to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. But he says, now that I'm with you, it's so much more important that you're living that way now. So why does he say that? Why does this much more matter so much? Why does he say this in the way that he says it? And I wanna explain to you kind of where this is going. So, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence the key element in verse 12 is the phrase, much more. And here's a few things I want to point out. Gospel conduct should be the result of who you are and not whom you are with. Your gospel conduct, your obedience, your living and walking in a manner worthy of the gospel should be the product, should be the result of who you are, specifically who you are in Christ, not who you are with or whom you are with. Tina, I can never remember which one it is. Whom? It's whom? Okay. For whom you are with. Paul makes it clear that their salvation is their own. And that's, that's, that's how you read and understand the whole much more. As you read a little bit before where it says, work out your own salvation. This salvation is yours. You will stand before God according to your own salvation, to your life, to your conduct, not your mom's or your dad's, not your spiritual parents, not your father or grandfather in the faith, not the one that mentored you, discipled you, that held your hand and coached you in the fundamental elements of Christian faith and doctrine and practice, not those people. Those, you will not stand on their coattails when you stand before God. You will stand independent on how you worked out your own salvation because it's yours. Because it's yours is what he's getting at. That's why it matters so much that on your own you're obeying. Because it's one thing for me to have a spiritual giant right here beside me holding my hand through life. Because that's going to help determine the way that I conduct myself. Because A, I don't want to be a disappointment to him. I don't want to be a disappointment to her. I don't want to be a disappointment to my mom. I don't want to be a disappointment to my dad. So I conducted myself a certain way as I was growing up because I was a reflection or an image of them, a representation of them. But now I live on my own. My life is my own. And I have a way and a manner in which I should live my life. Gospel conduct should be the result of who you are and not whom you are with. And Paul makes this clear. The Philippians have a new identity. They're in Jesus now. They're not in Paul. They're in Christ they're a reflection or an image of Jesus, not a reflection or an image of Paul. And this is what he's getting at. 
live out your own salvation, work out your own salvation, much more in my absence because I'm not always with you. There comes a time in everybody's life where you gotta kinda do for yourself. In the early portion of their salvation, the Philippians were able to lean on Paul, lean on his wisdom, his discipleship, but now Paul encourages them to live independent lives in a manner worthy of the gospel. You know that time in a young person's life where the parents play less of a role in leading and more of a role in supporting? I mean, that's, 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 where, that's where Tina is. That's where, well, not where, uh, where your mom is not there yet. You know, she'll, she'll get there. Um, but we understand this, right? We understand the idea of, okay, it's time for you to kind of step out on your own two feet, to kind of fend for yourself, to kind of learn, make some mistakes, learn from those mistakes, be sharpened, be refined through those things, be pruned. That's a part of a parental role. It's a part of a child's role to say, it's time for me to not be 40 years old and live in my parents' basement and play video games all day. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's time for me not to be that way. I'm going Paul Washer on you right now, okay? That's, that's some of his talk. My boss routinely says uh, to several of us in the company, hey, you guys just need to figure it out. <laughs> just figure it out. We're like, why, Chris? You're here. <laughs> You're here and you can tell us how to do it. Just figure it out. Because we're no longer novices when it comes to the job that we're doing. Some of the other guys, unlike myself, are much further improved and further along in their sanctification and in the, in their growth and progress in the, in the construction world. But this is the essence of what Paul is saying. He's like, look, you, there comes a time where you've got to work these things out. You've got to develop on your own. You can't lean on me. This is not to say that you don't always have Christ. We always have Christ. I'm not saying that, and we'll bring that in at the very end because that's the great hope that we, that we end with. But this is what Paul is saying, saying, I'm not with you, so it's much more important that in my absence that you're being obedient. It's much more important that in my absence, because it says a lot more of who you are in owning your salvation and living a life in a manner worthy of the gospel. Like the Philippians, it is critical that we develop our own convictions in terms of doctrine, practice, and theology. We can't always hold the hands of the ones who served as our mothers and fathers in the faith. Paul is encouraging them with an independence. And this is a major issue. This is a major issue. Listen to this. Independent faith produces independent convictions. Independent faith produces independent convictions. It's so important that our convictions become our own convictions. What if Paul's with the Philippians, and for those years that he spent with them, mentoring them, discipling them, whatever was going on there that played a role in who they are now, along with the work of the Holy Spirit, the sanctifying work of God drawing near to them and, the, and God conforming them to the image of Jesus. This is all happening, right? But, but let's not eliminate the human element because God has designed our growth to work with the human element, with other brothers and sisters in Christ who are sharpening one another as iron would sharpen iron, who would mentor, who would disciple, who would see to it that we're moved from a spiritual food that is milk to a spiritual food that is meat. So this is how God's designed it. This is the great paradigm for sanctification, for discipleship, for spiritual maturation. But it's important that our faith becomes our own and that our convictions become our own. See, we all start out believing what we're told, 
to believe, but at some point we must take ownership and live out our personal relationship and our personal understanding to that doctrine or to that practice or to that conviction. Let me give you some examples. Being brought up Baptist, which most of you in here were, you're brought up, but most of the Haven Ridge congregation is, is brought up Baptist, not everybody. But being brought up Baptist, you believe in believer's baptism. No, you believe in baptism by immersion. And there are Baptists, young and old, who would stake their flag and say, this is, this is my place, I'm not moving from this. I wholeheartedly believe in baptism by immersion. But for me personally, the years and years that I held to that, I couldn't articulate or I couldn't argue with any kind of cogent, rational argument as to why I held to that. You see, the reason I held to it was not because the scriptures had, had so affected me and influenced me that I could see it no other way. It wasn't that I could come to you and say, well, let's, let's look here. What, this is what's happening here. This is where immersion takes place, and this seems to be why immersion takes place. This seems to be why it happens in this mode and this manner. This is what it images. This is what it represents. What about the time that I couldn't say these things, and I would just say, well, that's, that's just the Baptist way. The problem is there's not independent convictions that are driving you, that are driving your practice or driving your conviction because independent faith does produce independent conviction. And that is what Paul is telling them. You have to live independently. Not independently of God, but independently in large degrees from the human factor. Because at the end of all things, you will stand before God. You will stand before God alone. And this person's influence and this person's influence will not determine the end result. This person's faith, I shouldn't say influence, this person's faith or this person's convictions will not determine the end result. You will stand before God based on the work of Christ and you will answer to God based on what you did with what he made you. Or you'll stand before God and answer for what you did not do. What about believing in eternal security, another, another strong Baptist doctrine? Believing in eternal security, once saved, always saved. And I know there's, that's a kind of a loaded statement. Uh, I do believe that if you're genuinely in Christ, then you are genuinely kept. I think God keeps you. I do believe, I do believe that if you feel like you can lose salvation, I do believe that is an offense to the atonement and it reduces, it reduces the potency of the atonement. It reduces... The, the power of the Holy Spirit whose job is to seal us. Uh, so I think it's a great doctrinal offense to think that you can lose salvation. So one of the great Baptist doctrines that we hold to is what? Is eternal security. But if you believe that just because you're told to believe that, if you grow up and you hear that and that's what you believe because you were told it, but you can't really articulate it, you can't really argue it, then that means it hasn't become your personal conviction. It hasn't affected you. But independent faith does what? It produces independent conviction. So we must have independent faith. Look, here's, here's where we run into problems. We run into problems when our theological convictions are reduced to a series of quotes from our favorite authors theologians and pastors, rather than being born out of a season of wrestling with truth, contemplating truth, and giving a lot of thought to these things. You see, it's a problem when someone says to you, what do you believe about this? And your response is, well, MacArthur says, or Piper says, or Pink says, or Edwards says, or Baxter says, or so on and so forth. Uh, Birchfield says, there's a problem here, right? There's a problem. 
because we got to have our own convictions. And that's what independent faith produces, is independent convictions. Don't be a lazy Calvinist. Don't be a lazy Arminian. Don't be a lazy cessationist. Don't be a lazy continuous. For those of you that don't know what those words are, I won't go into Calvinist and Arminian, but I will go into cessationist continuous. Cessationist believes that the gifts have ceased. Continuous believes that the gifts continue. Very simple, right? And these are not first-tier issues. These are issues under that, right? We can all, we can be in disagreement on these things and still be a part of the same denomination, still be a part of the same faith. This is what I mentioned last week about Albert Moeller's uh, theological triage, a way of understanding these things. But what I mean by don't be lazy is if you're going to say, say I'm a Calvinist, if you're going to say I'm an Arminian, if you're going to claim whatever you're going to claim, whatever system you're going to hold to, not that the system defines you or not that the system is where your identity comes from, but it's a way of explaining what you hold to be true in the Bible. And that's cool. That's fine. But to be lazy in that way means, well, this is what I think it is to be a Calvinist. This is how I understand this to be an Arminian. And instead of saying, okay, let's look at these texts and just chew on this for a while, we go to Piper and we say, well, Piper preached this sermon so many years ago. I'm going to send you a link to that. You read it and you'll be convinced. Or Spurgeon kind of got on the map because, man, he preached this. Or, or have you read, which I mentioned to you the other day, have you read Luther's Bondage of the Will, if you want to really get into it? There's nothing in the world wrong with leaning on those guys or women who have contributed in such a way. There's nothing wrong with those things because God has been so gracious to give us thinkers that have gone before us to help work out these things and give us food for thought to help shape a more refined and more exact theology. And these things matter. But to be lazy means I'm just gonna ride the coattails of someone else. I'm not gonna develop my own convictions over this. I'm just gonna kinda point people to this link or point people to this quote. My exhortation to you, my admonishment to you, is that you develop your convictions from what the Scripture tells you. You have an intimate relationship with the Bible and you start to work these things out. As you look at the grand narrative, as you have a proper hermeneutic, Scripture interpreting Scripture, and you start to formulate conviction, independent conviction. And then you can say, well, man, Piper said this. I've been reading this. He kind of argues it this way, and that's, you know, with the Bible as the backdrop, that's making sense. That's the way these things are done, and that's the way that's good, right, and proper. Authors and theologians aren't bad, but they will stand before God on their own convictions just like you will stand on your own convictions. And when Paul says, when Paul says, obey now much more in my absence, I think that's what he's getting at. I think that's what he's trying to emphasize. You're, you're on your own. Lean into Jesus. Lean into his teachings Lean into what we have in the Old Testament. Lean into everything that the Bible's telling us to frame our worldview of who God is. Lean into those things. But what are the consequences of dependent convictions? Well, I just wrote one. You may fold under the pressure of having to make a stand for what you believe in. If it's not your deep conviction, you may not see the need to suffer for it. Does that make sense? If you, if, you, if you don't have a deep conviction about something, when the rubber meets the road, you might not stand and fight for it. And if you won't stand and fight for it, you most certainly won't suffer for it. 
And this applies to any conviction that you have. I have seen people argue the most petty things, and they would come to blows over these arguments, over just ridiculous stuff, whether it was in college, maybe not so much in seminary, although there were fun spirited arguments there in seminary, but just talking to people just all over the place, having these conversations. I've seen some petty, petty, petty arguments. And they're convictional about these things. They're willing to go down in flames if they, if they have to. And that's the kind of conviction that independent faith produces. Once your salvation becomes your own, it is your own, but once you live it in that way and Christ begins to mold you and God is making you more like Jesus and you are becoming more acquainted with the word of God, then that's what begins to happen as independent convictions on which you will stand before God and give an account. So then Paul moves on. He says, okay, so now that we've got that covered, now the issue is that in my presence much more be obedient than in my absence. He says, work out your own salvation. He says, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. But I want to divide that in half because work out your salvation. Like we, we, we say that, we quote that a lot, but do we really know what that means? What does it actually mean to work out your salvation here? It literally means to work on until the finish. That kind of helps understand things a bit. I don't know why the English translators didn't just spell it out that way because the, the Greek rendering of that seems a little bit clearer to me. Just work out your salvation. What does that mean? Well, work on your salvation until it's finished. Okay, well, that makes a little more sense because Jesus said, or because Jesus said just a little while before, or Paul taught that, that Jesus said that he who, or Paul said that he who began a good work in you will be faithful until his completion. So God started this thing and so we're, we're now working this out. And the idea here is continuous, strenuous action is what, this, is, what is, is, the, is the, the, the focus behind the language. It means to produce a conduct that progressively reflect, or reflects the newness of life for those identifying with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what it is to work out your salvation. It's a process, a process it means to produce a, a conduct that progressively reflects the newness of life for those identifying with the gospel of Jesus. Salvation is a process. Second Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, 12. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and which you are being saved. It's a process. Second Corinthians 2, 15. For the aroma of Christ to God for those who are being saved. You're being saved. You have been saved. You are being saved, and you will be saved at the time of completion. So in order to explain this process, what language does the Bible use to help us understand a little bit better what this process is like? Well, 1 Corinthians, Paul says it's like a race. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? He says it's like a pursuit. Philippians, he says, not that I have already obtained this or am perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Paul also likens it to a goal. He presses on towards the goal for the prize, the upward call of Christ Jesus. He likens it into a fight. First Timothy he says, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So a race, a pursuit, a goal, and a fight. Each one of these requires work each one of them. If you're a runner, it requires work. If you're in a race, it require, work, requires, sorry, requires work. A little bit of a tongue twister. It requires work. 
it's a pursuit, it requires work. A goal, same thing. A fight, most definitely, it's work. It's work in the middle of the fight. It's work in preparation of the fight. Same for a race, same for a pursuit, same for a goal. So how do we work out our salvation to its finish? Or more literally, how do we work on our salvation to the finish? The text helps to, this text, by the way, one theologian said this text unlocks the mystery of sanctification because it shows how man and his responsibility is is working out his salvation while God is, according to his will and good pleasure, working with man to see this thing come to its completion. So it's a beautiful text on sanctification and it, and it kind of answers the heart of the issue. So let me give you some practical things to look at. For the runner, the runner works to set himself up for success by having the right clothing, by having the right diet, by having the right mindset, by having the right breathing patterns when he runs or she runs, having the right schedule for running, having the right sleep schedule for running. These are all components that help runners achieves, achieve the goals of success. And the runners, whether or not he or she is preparing for a race or just running, it involves work. So how do we relate this for the saint or through the saint? Like a runner prepares for the race or like a runner just prepares for each individual run to get better and better and to make progress, this is how it applies for the saint. Here's some practical ways to understand what working out our salvation looks like for the saint. First of all, it looks like denying ourselves daily, just to use biblical descriptions, denying ourselves daily of our most natural inclinations. And stay with me on this because this is important. So what's our natural default mode? The flesh. To gratify the flesh, to please the flesh. And I don't mean just in the realm of uh, something that's perverse or something like lust or pornography. I'm not saying that the flesh is anything that, that, that we desire that's of the world that we put in a loftier position than Jesus Christ. These are idols and this is an appeasement of the flesh. The flesh is what drives us. So instead of looking to gratify the flesh, we proactively work towards denying the flesh and searching for satisfaction in Christ and in Christ alone. This is a practical way that you, as a saint, like the runner, can work out his salvation or her salvation and set yourself up for success. The saint also replaces earthly treasures with heavenly treasures. You have to have a greater treasure than what you make to be your treasures here. I have to have a greater treasure than my wife, than my children, than my job, than, my, uh, than anything that brings me hope, anything that I say this is a treasure, good things. I don't mean bad things, I mean good things that are easily made into treasures. I have to have something that rests on a higher pedestal than those. That's gonna set me up for success. That's gonna ensure that I finish strong or that I, that I complete this process. It looks like concerning ourselves more with building up the kingdom of God over building up our own kingdoms. It looks like being intentional with offensive and defensive tactics to help secure holiness in our life. And that, the application is through the roof there. Whatever your struggle is, whatever it is that you're, that, that, that's your hangup, that's the foothold that the enemy has with you, what can you do to be defensive? What can you do to be safe? What can you do to eliminate the possibilities I talked to students a few weeks ago and we talked a little bit about Facebook. If Facebook is something that causes you to fall into a depression like it does for many people because you see just a bunch of hate, a bunch of just wickedness across the web, 
If, if your temptation is to get on there and to berate somebody or to defame the name of Christ by misrepresenting him because you get caught up in something that's unhealthy. If it's something that you see that you chase, an article that's inappropriate to look at or to read, and you chase that down, you say, oh my goodness gracious, well, I'm not setting myself up for success, so as a saint, what should I do? How do I work out my salvation right here? How am I doing that? Well, what you do is you delete Facebook. You say, that's the extreme measure that I have to take, and I just do without it. If that's what's causing me to stumble, then I need to do without it altogether. Don't trust that I'm gonna be strong enough to not indulge myself, but to eliminate it altogether. And that applies to so many different things. That's a defensive tactic. Most importantly, the best defense and offense is to know the word of God. Just to know the word of God. Know the word of God and bind it on your heart and respond in obedience to what it says. That's working out your salvation. It's living a life in a manner worthy of the gospel. It's striving, it's straining, it's fighting every day, it's working every day to properly and rightly reflect or image Jesus. That's exactly what it means to work out your salvation. That's what it means. It's not complex, it's hard to do, but it's not hard to understand. Work out your salvation. Everything I've read, most scholars point to this. There were some that were saying some weird stuff that I was like, I don't, I don't think that's right. But the grand consensus is here it is. Work out your salvation. Keep living. That seems to be consistent with the context of Philippians 1 and thus far in Philippians 2. So we rely on context. That's how we interpret this. So keep working, keep living, keep honoring Jesus with your life. And that is what it means to work out your salvation. That is what it is. But he doesn't just tell us to work it. He says there's a way in, in which we work out our salvation. And he says it's with fear and with trembling. So it's not enough just to work it, but there's a disposition, there's a demeanor and a posture that we have when we work these things out. Just like considering others and their interest as more important than yours and yours, uh, just like considering their interest and, and considering them as more significant than yourself, those things demand humility, according to Ephesians or to Philippians. Effectively working out your salvation demands fear and trembling. I'll give you two brief illustrations that'll hopefully help connect the dots here. One of the most dangerous surgeries, according to research, is a, uh, what's called a pancreatectomy, which is a removal of the pancreas. Said to be one of the most dangerous, which I saw that and thought, that doesn't make sense. Why is that, why is that so dangerous? It's because of the complication that can happen subsequent to the surgery itself, even, even fatal consequences. So you can rest assured that a doctor who's performing the pancreatectomy, even though he's very skilled in what he does, I'm sure he approaches the procedure with fear and with trembling. He approaches it with a reverence and a respect for what can go wrong with his own humanity and with his own human inability, that anything can go wrong. With his own imperfections, those things have caused him to have a particular disposition when it comes to performing this surgery. What about a bomb specialist? You better believe a bomb specialist approaches a situation where he has to defuse a bomb with fear and with trembling because if there's a wrong move, the devastation is through the roof and most likely will cost him and others their lives. Both of these specialists, both of these professionals, they approach certain tasks with fear and with trembling. And there is a demeanor there's a demeanor in which both these specialists have. There's a demeanor that Christians should have as our duty, 
our responsibility, the task that we're called to, like the pancreatectomy uh, or, or, or like ta- diffusing a bomb, ours is to image Jesus. And if there's anything that should cause fear and trembling in our life, it should be imaging Christ. Can you think of anything that is more deserving of fear and trembling? Anything more deserving of caution and concern? This is our call. This is our task to image Christ. And that's to be done with care and consideration, with fear and with trembling. This means that there's an attitude or disposition one has when setting out for a task. Fear and trembling usually serve as a prelude or they, they serve as a prelude to or it accompanies work that is of great risk or great value. Dr. Heil R. Jones of Westminster Seminary, he says this, working out your salvation means to map out a pursuit of the fullness of salvation. So how do we apply fear and trembling? Understand what that is. There's a disposition that we should have as we're obeying the word of God, as we're living in accordance with the scriptures, as we're walking in a manner worthy of the gospel. Ephesians and Philippians say both of those things. If we're doing that, that's working out our salvation. But to do it with fear and trembling, this is what it means. And I just want to give you a few examples because uh, I don't want to spend all my time on that, but I want this to be practical for you to walk away saying, okay, I kind of see now how that happens. Everything we do by way of obedience to God should be done with reverence and humility and so on. So, for example, worship. This is what we're called to do as followers of Jesus, right? This is just one of the many things we do in obedience to God. We worship. So what does it look like to worship with fear and trembling? Does it mean that as you're singing that you're shaking your lips quivering or something like that? No, absolutely not. But here's, here's what it looks like or here's what it means. It looks like you offering your best with full attention with full allegiance and with full vulnerability to God and what he's doing or wants to do in your life or what you need in your life. It looks like giving him your absolute best. It looks like saying, you know what, I'm gonna stand here. If, you're, if that form of worship is in singing, because worship is in many forms, but if your form of worship is in singing and you have the opportunity to sing, this is where so many people mess up because, oh, I don't know if I like that song. And it doesn't have anything to do with the lyrical content or the doctrinal content. It has to do with, oh, it's just not my favorite song to sing. So I'm going to opt out of this one. I'm just going to play on my phone or I'm just going to do something else. I'll just sit this one out. That's, that's the opposite of what we're called to do. That's the opposite of fear and trembling. Because this is an obligation that we have, a privilege that we have as Christians, is to worship the Lord God. And so when we do it, It demands our full attention. It demands our integrity. It demands our vulnerability. And it demands our full allegiance. And if that is, God, I'm struggling through the song. God, I don't know if I can sing it honestly. Begin praying and saying, God, make this true for me. Make this real for me. Because there's so many times that, uh, especially in congregational singing, when I'm not leading, that a song comes up. And I don't feel like I can sing it with integrity. You know, something, an old, an old Baptist favorite, I surrender all. I'm like, I've never done that. I've never surrendered all, ever in my life. So I struggle to sing that song. There's so many songs like that. And if we're really honest, pretty much any song that we sing that has to do with us saying, we subscribe this to you or this is who we are, then we need to be honest with ourselves and say, well, we don't quite make the cut all the time. So worship in that moment looks like realizing that we don't make the cut all the time and saying, God, make this true of my life. 
engaging in God in that way. So all of a sudden your singing, which is a form of worship, can then morph into prayer and vulnerability and, and confession as a form of worship. There's a way that it has to be done. That's what fear and trembling looks like. If we're to work out salvation with fear and trembling and worship is a part of working it out, how then does arbitrary, thoughtless, and emotionless worship appeal to God? How do you think that appeals to God? What kind of aroma is that to God when our worship is arbitrary and without emotion and without heart and it's just lip service like the Pharisees? We normally have some we do, we do today, so this will, this will definitely apply. Obeying parents. I wanted to kind of have an example for the, for the whole age range. To obey with fear and trembling basically means to understand the implications of your relationship or their relationship, the parent's relationship to you as the child, as appointed by God, and that disrespect for them is disrespect towards God. Now, because it's obvious, we have Zach and Avery that are here. Normally, we have more that are, that, are, that are still at home and still under the authority of their parents. So let me just be very specific with you guys because I love you guys and I want you to hear this. You're to honor and respect your parents, and you're to do that as an act of worship to God, as an act of obedience to what it is to be a child because they have been given authority over you. They have been given as your parents, and they are, they are going to answer for the role they've played in your life. So while they are, have the position that they have as your authority right now, while you're living in their home, it is absolutely imperative that in order to image Christ well and in order to live a life in a manner worthy of the gospel in a way that's with fear and trembling, it's to understand the relationship God has given them to you and to respect that paradigm, to respect that, even though it's hard sometimes. It's hard sometimes. Because parents are flawed too. My son was upset with me last night. We had probably an hour-long conversation about what he didn't think was proper justice. <laughs> you know, so it was, it, was, it was a big deal, and I may have made a mistake there. And so that happens sometimes. But it still matters so much in the sense that you're working out your salvation with fear and trembling, that you have a healthy understanding of the role that they play and the role that you have to them and the expectation on the two of you. And there's so many other illustrations that we just don't have time to go because we need to, we need to finish this up. So there's no doubt that these things are a tall order, right? Working out your salvation, he's saying, be obedient. Be holy, therefore, as I am holy. This is what he's saying. This is what it is to work out your salvation. And he says to do it in a certain way with fear and with trembling, with a reverence and with a respect and with a full knowledge that that. The human element in this can really mess things up badly. So I need to be always vulnerable and always ready to say, God, you need to humble me. God, you need to break me. God, you need to lead me here. I need, Holy Spirit, I need you to fight for me. I need you to make sure that I can do this with the right motive because I'm, I'm, I, I, I respect the, the magnitude of what I'm called to do. That's what it is to work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. So this is a tall order, impossible by yourself. But the Holy Spirit made sure that we would not lose hope concerning this endeavor, and here's why. Because the last verse says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And this is, this is some great news. Because he's not saying go it alone. 
Yes, independent faith produces independent convictions. But you're not going at this thing alone. And better than having Paul or better than having anyone else of these biblical characters or better than having whoever the spiritual mother or father is in your life who's been a mentor or played that role of a disciple, a disciple maker in your life, despite those people, what you have is you have God who's working with you according to his will and according to his good pleasure. The will and pleasure of God is the key that unlocks the door to gospel growth. This is God working. He's ensuring that what he began will be finished at completion. He doesn't just begin it and show up at the end. He's keeping you and working through you this whole time. He's making sure that what you're working out is in fear and trembling. So there's a tandem process going on. God is absolutely responsible for these things, but it's very clear in the text that you have a responsibility yourself because this is your own salvation that you are to work out with fear and with trembling. But it's not by yourself, but it's with God who is working in you. God is at work in you from the beginning to the end. Imagine someone who's born with a natural talent. Whatever it is, it could be a baseball player, it can be any kind of athlete, singer, writer. There are people born with natural abilities. I played baseball with a guy who didn't quite have a natural ability, but he had to work really hard to develop some skill. But most of the guys that I played with had a natural ability. You can, see, you can see kids with natural ability. They show up to the plate and they just hold the bat a certain way. Going to watch my son's baseball games, there are kids that show up and it's like, have they watched baseball for the first six years of their life or something? How do they, how do they know? They just have a look. There's a, the, the mechanics that they have, the, the rhythm to the way that they do things, the way that they throw the ball, the way that they catch the ball, the way that they feel the ball. It just looks different than some of the other kids. Maybe, maybe my son, maybe not. It just looks different. There's a natural ability. I, I would say that, that, you know, that, well, yeah, there's a natural ability and then those who don't have that natural ability. And it's in different things. I think some people, I think Clayton has a natural propensity toward understanding languages where I do not. I think that's natural to him. But here's the thing with natural abilities. They have to be developed. If I'm born and I was a decent athlete that became a somewhat better athlete, not a Division I athlete, definitely not a pro athlete, but, a, but an a- athlete, and I had to work at that. Avery, playing in, the, playing in the band. Avery might have a natural propensity or natural ability towards music, just like the rest of the Vaughns. I don't know about Melanie, but definitely the, the men in the family. You know, y'all have a natural propensity toward those things. But what happens if you're like, well, I kind of have a knack for it, but I'm just not going to develop it. You have this natural talent, this natural ability. The intention is for that to be worked out so that it progresses, so that it gets better. And I would liken this to the Christian life. Because what we have that correlates to the natural ability is we have Jesus who has given us his righteousness. We have the Holy Spirit who has indwelled us. So already we're set up for success. But there's a part that we play in there where we're working out salvation, where we're drawing near to God. And what happens is as we're working in tandem with God working in us and through us, behind us, just as it says here in verse 13, what happens is it causes a progression in our life. It causes a sanctification in our life, and it ensures that we will succeed in completion. A communicator, an athlete, a musician, whoever, has to develop a natural talent that they have. God has given us his spirit. God has given us the righteousness of Christ. He's given us new identity, but he says, but there's work that must be done. So don't be lazy in your Christianity. Don't be lazy as a follower of Christ and expect everything to be handed to you because God doesn't work that way. 
So we're given everything we need to successfully work for our salvation, work out our salvation and to finish strong. We're given new life, new identity. We're given the map to success, which is the Bible. We're given a mind capable of being renewed by the word of God. Otherwise, it wouldn't say renew your mind, renew your mind. And we are most importantly given the help of God's, the help of God's pleasure and God's will to see us through to completion. So here's some final thoughts for you. Evaluate the salvation-proving work of your life and identify areas that are weak or deficient. That's what you need to think about. What in my life is weak? What in my life is deficient? Because I'm trying to work out my, my salvation. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to honor Jesus in these things, but there's these places that I fall all the time. And those are easy to identify. You sin every day. And especially if there's patterns of sin in your life, you say, that's an area that's deficient. That's an area that's keeping me from progress. That's an area that, that God is showing me that I have to work out, that I have, to, that I have to defend against, that I have to deny myself of. So you have to identify these areas that are deficient. So what is keeping you from being your best? And this isn't health, wealth, prosperity. You know that. But God's expectation is that you work and that you do be your best with him working behind you, but it's definitely a both-and situation. So what is it that keeps you from being your best? You know what it is in your life. You know the strongholds that you have, and you can identify. It's easy to identify those deficiencies. Just like an athlete, who, a, a golfer, who has a, who, he, keeps, he keeps messing up in his swing. He keeps slicing the ball, whatever he's doing. He has to find out. He has to watch his swing over and over again to find out what pattern or what is it that's causing the problem. Why is he shanking the ball all the time? He can identify it, then he can take care of the issue. And that's what we have to do in order to work out our salvation with fear and trembling and to be successful in that so that at the end of all things, we arrive at completion, at perfection. According to Philippians 1.6, we get there. But how do we get there? We have to be proactive in identifying our deficiencies. So what adjustments do you need to make to your life in order that you might successfully work out your salvation? That's the question I want to I want to leave you with this morning. Reflect on that. Think about what your own issues are. What are deficient areas? What are the patterns that are causing me or my growth to be stunted? And how can I take care of those things? Lean in on the Bible. Lean in on the Word of God. Follow its commands. Talk to others. And get helpful instruction from those that have journeyed and walked through this type of fire before. And find true freedom. Find true freedom so that you can live your best, and that best is a life that is in a manner worthy of the gospel. Let's pray together.